Uh, We're reading from Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat on his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who has struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You were also with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the cock crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Thank you, Tim. Uh, let's, uh, let's have a prayer before we think about this passage together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, again come to to look at the Bible, asking that um, uh, these would be words from you to us, uh, that we would uh, hear them as your Holy Spirit comes and makes them clear to us, and that our hearts would be responsive to you. Uh, We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians fuss about faith, don't they? Um, Make a big thing out of the the whole faith business. Um, How clear are we sometimes on what really we understand and mean by the business of believing? Uh, I think towards the end of uh, last Sunday morning when I was speaking then, I ended with an illustration about faith. I asked you if you were here, you remember. I asked you to imagine you're tumbling down a cliff face, um, certain death on the rocks below. 
and as you glance at the cliff face, you see a tiny branch. Uh, and I was asking, how much faith do you need for the branch to save you? you know, do you need to be absolutely, utterly, rock sure, certain that that branch is capable of saving you in order for it to save you? Or would it be enough just to have a, a teeny-weeny, kind of maybe just possibly that branch might save me kind of faith? Does it actually make any difference? As long as you reach out and grab it, whether you're reaching out and grabbing it with lots of faith or reaching out and grabbing it with a little bit of faith, it doesn't make any difference. Whether you get saved or not depends on the branch. If the branch is strong enough, you'll be saved, however much faith you had. And the point of the illustration was to say, when it comes to salvation, it, it's not a kind of collaboration between us and God. You know, God does his bit by Jesus dying on the cross, and, and we contribute our faith. And as long as the contribution from our side is big enough, we get saved. You know, the, the work is all done by God. Now, like all illustrations, it has its strengths and it has its shortcomings. The illustration is intended to say... Um, it doesn't matter how much faith you have. But of course, the illustration also, well, kind of, it's a situation where who wouldn't reach out and grab it? You know, what have you got to lose at that moment? But of course, there are other situations where to have faith, well, you could lose quite a lot. Uh, take Peter in the courtyard. See, to demonstrate his faith then, to not be ashamed to confess the faith in Jesus Christ, well, costly in the garden, wasn't it? Arrest? Would they have strung him up next to Jesus? I don't know. But, but there, faith suddenly looked quite costly, didn't it? What a tough thing to believe there. And all sorts of situations where it's, it's sort of, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Um, take Margaret going to Japan. You know, do you have to believe to give up life here, to go off on your own into a foreign country, learn a foreign language? that decision, that step of faith is going to be costly. It's harder to believe and make that step. Or what about taking faith, the, the, holding on to the sort of faith that helps you to stand firm in the midst of depression? To believe that God is good, even when everything in you is telling you that God's abandoned you. To keep believing in that place. See, there are places and situations, aren't there, where it is, as it were, harder to believe. Maybe you're in one of those situations right now. So why would you do it? Why believe? Um, this account of the trial of Jesus... Uh, before the, the, the leaders of the people, um, uh, the Sanhedrin. Well, it provides us with 
reasons to believe. And I just want to look at three with you um, uh, this morning. And the, the first reason to believe is that he came. It's striking, isn't it? You haven't even felt it. Right through the trial, all these accusations flying around and Jesus remained silent. and didn't say anything at all. You can almost sense that the high priest is getting more and more fed up with it. Till eventually he, he sort of charges Jesus under oath. I adjure you, I charge you, Jesus, by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus isn't big on oaths and vows. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Tells people, you know, don't go in for that oath, swear bit. Just let yes be yes, you know be no. And because he's consistent with himself, he doesn't respond with an oath. He just makes an utterly clear declaration of his identity. Uh, Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Actually, is it clear? Kind of funny, that first bit, isn't it? You have said so. What's that about? Not not exactly a clear... Has he been cagey? It's not sort of, yes, I am. It's well, you have said so. Why does he do that? Imagine I'm having the vicarage decorated. And imagine that prior to having the vicarage decorated, I have inherited millions of pounds. So that instead of splashing a bit of Dulux around, I have been able to employ a world-famous artist who is going to paint murals all over the walls of the vicarage. And imagine that you come to visit on the day that he starts work. And you, you know nothing of my plans or my inheritance of millions. So you arrive at the vicarage and you come into the hall and there is a man in overalls. And you say to him, are you the painter? What's he to say? You see, you think that I've employed A1 painting and decorating services to to put up some emulsion and you think he must be the painter. So is, is he to say yes or no? I mean, he is the painter, but he's not the painter as you think he's the painter. He's a very different painter. Jesus is doing something similar. I suppose the painter in my hall could say to you, yes, but not in the sense you mean it. Jesus responds with the same sense, but slightly different words. You have said so. You call me Messiah. You call me Son of God, and that I am, but not in the sense you mean it. But let me make it clear to you what it really means. What it means is that from now on you will see me, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power, that is of God himself, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Um, Jesus is borrowing a couple of Old Testament images. Uh, One from Psalm 110, where you have God speaking to to the Messiah. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your your feet. Uh, And then he's borrowing an image from Daniel chapter 7, where in a vision, um, Daniel sees the Son of Man 
coming before the, um, the Ancient of Days, God himself on his throne to be given power and authority and a kingdom that will last forever. They're, they're powerful, enormously powerful Old Testament images of, uh, of this Messiah figure with such power and authority. And Jesus says, I am the one who has come, and I have come to save. Um, Do do you watch, it's probably a sort of man thing, Um, do you watch those films where where someone does some marvellous rescue? Um, There's the one with Liam Neeson, whose daughter gets kidnapped by, um, by terrorists, um, and no, not by terrorists, by, by um, human traffickers. Um, and Liam Neeson is a bit of a failure as a father. Um, he's been sort of eclipsed by a stepfather. And, um, uh, and he's sort of a bit of a failure figure. But, but as it happens, he's also an ex-CIA agent. I mean, it's sort of handy, really. Um, and so when she's been sort of kidnapped by these traffickers in Paris... Um, he is able to sort of come to the fore and swoop over to Paris and after more fistfights, car chases and bullets than you could ever possibly imagine compressing into Paris, um, Liam Neeson comes good and he gets her on the boat uh, just as she's about to disappear off um, forever and ever and um, with sort of mayhem all around. Um, She turns and she sees her father and she says, you came for me. Um, and because c- I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I, I'm quite soppy. So yeah, when, when that moment comes and she turns and she sees her dad there, you came for me. Um, and I go all sort of gooey inside. Um, here is the picture. Who came for us? The one seated at the right hand of the power on high. And the one to whom is all authority and power. The Son of God himself came for us. You came for me. He came. Secondly, would you see that he came in weakness? Uh, Liam Neeson plays the all-conquering American hero. By the end of the film, he's transformed from a sort of rejected, slightly disappointing father figure um, into the man who can do no wrong. That's how it goes in films. But the gospel tells us that Jesus emptied himself, that he set aside his glory, that he endured the shame of the cross. He didn't do something mighty that the world would see as deeply impressive. As one of the New Testament letters puts it, he did something that the world finds foolish. He became weak, got himself executed by being pinned to a cross. And, And the world finds it sort of contemptuous, ridiculous. It's all part of the great reversal. The God of life gets condemned to death. The great deliverer is arrested and bound. 
the judge himself gets put on trial. The prince of glory endures shame. And the one of great power is made weak. Because that, it turns out, is how salvation works. And into films today, obviously. There's a moment in, um, in the first of the Lord of the Rings films when um, Galadriel, that's the, the sort of the very impressive Kate Blanchett, um, who seems to hang around in forests gazing in little pools of water. Well, um, Galadriel um, is speaking with Frodo about his mission to destroy the Ring of Power. Um, and Frodo is overwhelmed and wonders how someone so small and insignificant and, and weedy as him can possibly complete this, this extraordinary task that has been given him. And Galadriel leans forward and with great solemnity uh, announces even the smallest person can change the course of the future. Now, I've not gone back and checked, but um, I gather from a reliable source that if you look in the book, you won't find that line. It's not a line that Tolkien wrote. Even the smallest person can change the course of the future. Because actually it's not what Tolkien would have written. It's a sort of, it's a sort of 1960s idea, isn't it? Something like that. Um, you know, all of us are significant. You know, you, you've got to have, you've got to believe in yourself. You know, don't think of yourself as, as, as small. Even small people can do something. You know, big yourself up a bit. You have a bit of self-esteem. It's a sort of 60s idea. Tolkien didn't construct his story around ideas of self-esteem. Tolkien was a Christian. And the Lord of the Rings is crafted around themes and threads from the gospel. See, Tolkien was showing us by using Frodo as the saviour figure, that salvation comes to us by the one who gives away power rather than seizes it for himself. All around Frodo, you remember in the book, are people who would take the ring and use the power to try and achieve salvation. And all of them would have created mayhem and destruction. Now, it takes a Frodo who, in weakness, gives away power, disposes of the ring, casts it off. Through that, salvation comes. Here we read of the one who has come from God's right hand, the one of ultimate glory, the one who could, with a word, have summoned the hosts of heaven to his side and chooses not to. Who releases the power that he has because he knows that salvation comes through weakness, through him letting go of his power for us. What we're reading of is a God who so emptied himself of his power that he let his own creatures spit in his face. Who allowed himself, this God, to be blindfolded and slapped and jeered at 
Tell us who hit you, Christ. Prophesy. Don't you know? Can't you see? When all the time it was the face of their own creator that they were hitting. The eyes of the all-seeing God that they had covered. This is the measure of his love for us, this God who saves. To empty himself to weakness for us. So he came. He came in weakness. And he came in weakness to save the weak. It's a very painful scene, isn't it? The scene in the courtyard. It's like two trials going on side by side. There is Jesus being tried before the Sanhedrin and there is Peter enduring his own trial out in the courtyard. I, I, always, I think I've always wanted to, to, to try and believe that Peter was playing a long game, you know, cunningly staying undercover um, with this sort of magnificent plan of, of springing Jesus and becoming the hero. Maybe he was. But the reality is, whatever was in his head, he was only ready to be brave on his terms. He wasn't ready to be brave on the terms that Jesus set. John says that it was Peter who took the sword in the garden, cut off the servant's ear when they came to arrest Jesus. Brave then. And here he is, he's followed Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Brave. But it's bravery on his terms. Ready to stand and fight. Not ready to be weak. Not ready to die to self. And it must have been the deepest humiliation for Peter to fail like this. To have Jesus fix eyes upon him as the cock crowed. And be forced to remember that he is doing just as Jesus said he would do. But think of the far side. Think what Peter would have learnt, the far side of his restoration, after the three times when Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That he would have learnt that salvation was available even for him. Salvation was available even when you had been ashamed of the one who said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Oh, no, but even that can get forgiven. Salvation available for the weak. I had a funny moment um, this week. I was, um, I was reading some verses in Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, they're, they're lovely verses. Perhaps you've read them yourself at some stage. Um, verses about God as the shepherd king who gathers um, his lambs in his arms, who carries them close to his bosom, who gently leads those that are with young. Beautiful verses um, about the, the tender care of a shepherd God. And they led me into prayer, and I found myself praying, Lord, help me to really believe this. Help me, Lord, to really entrust myself to you. Help me, Lord, to give myself into your arms. 
Help me, Lord, to rely upon you. Help me to trust you. And then, as those prayers tumbled out, I began to realize what I'd done. I'd taken a promise about what God does for us, and I turned it into something I had to do for him. Did you see? I turned it into a prayer about, yeah, please help me to trust. Please help me to rely on you. Please help me to give myself into your arms. All the stuff that I had to do. Instead of simply saying thank you for your salvation. Thank you that this is your gift to me. Thank you that you carry me. Thank you that you are a shepherd who bears me in your arms. See, the answer to our struggles to believe isn't to try and dredge up faith from some deep well somewhere inside us through mighty effort. Now that turns it to all being about us again. The answer is to see, to gaze on the one who came. To remember that he made himself weak. And to remember that he came for the weak. See who he is. See what he's given up. And see who he's given it up for. Those are things that Margaret needs to remember over these coming years in Japan. But the things that every believer needs to remember, that the Lord's Supper that we're about to share speaks to us of those things. That those of us who are believers who will take bread and wine now do so remembering who he is, the Lord God, how he made himself weak for us. And we do it with empty hands, just receiving his astonishing gift to us. Uh, Let me lead us in a prayer. Uh, Our gracious God, that is what you are. You are full of grace that you would do this for us. That you, the God of power, would become weak. You, the God of glory, endure shame. You, the God of life, uh, would give yourself to death. Uh, Father, press upon us uh, the the wonder of this salvation. Uh, For those of us who are not yet sure if we do believe, uh, open our eyes to see a salvation that is uh, so rich, so lovely, um, uh, so, so vital for us. Uh, and bring us to faith. Now, for those of us who are believing, um, take away our straining uh, as if it is all uh, uh, our task to, to, to wrench faith from within uh, and help us to, to see again as we receive bread and wine now uh, that your gift to us is extravagant, uh, your salvation uh, rich and wonderful. 
we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.